0: Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So, just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24 7, 365 days a year. So, you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, and affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings
1: Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.
0: It's pointing right at you. As we've said before, Marcus Aurelius expected an ordinary life for himself. He was bookish. He was quiet. Then suddenly he found almost literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. He was chosen to be king of most of the known universe. Destiny called. Was he special? Of course But was he that different from you? No. No, he wasn't. Because we're all chosen for something. Perhaps our duty is not quite as heavy as ruling the Roman Empire, but each of us has a task, a calling. It's like that line from the Iron Maiden song, hand of fate is moving and the finger points to you. The question is whether you will step forward and wear the purple, as it were, whether you'll shrink from it and hide, Marcus Aurelius was scared at first. We're told he wept, worried that he'd be as bad as the bad emperors before him. But Rusticus, his teacher, helped him. Antoninus helped him. His philosophy helped him. He dreamed one night that he had shoulders of ivory. That's how he knew. He was ready. He could bear the weight. The finger is pointing at you. Will you accept what fate has in store for you? Will you be extraordinary? Or will you hide? Will you shirk your duty? Will you not just accept mediocrity, but seek out being average or less than average? Will you be the person philosophy that destiny has tried to make you? That is the question. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoke Podcast. I don't know about you, but I readily accept that we live in a golden age of television. There's amazing series on every streaming platform you could possibly imagine who can watch them all. But I have just found, and I talk about this a little bit in today's interview, I just don't have the stomach for it. I mean, I don't have time as much as I would like to watch some of this stuff, but you know, I just found, especially since I have kids, but, but especially as the world is what it is, I just don't, I'm tired of the anti-heroes. I'm also tired of a show being eight seasons, you know, every episode's an hour. It's just, it's just madness. But, but so when I do sit down to watch TV, you know, I end up watching like series, but, but like really formulaic ones. Like I love Law & Order and I've watched every episode of Law & Order over the years, many of them, many times. During the pandemic, I I rewatched The Office and Parks and Rec, two of my, all time favorite shows. I'd rather, I don't know, by the time I get to the end of the day, I'm gonna sit down and watch something I, I don't want. It's not that I don't want to be challenged, but I I, I feel like I like something comfortable and something that's fun and uh, ridiculous, but also real. And I just think The Office is one of the greatest shows of all time. Seinfeld's on Netflix now. So uh, I've been uh, re-watching some Seinfeld. Um, and you've probably heard me quote all these different shows uh, from time to time. We've done some pretty awesome stoic memes from The Office lately also. So when I got an email from the publisher of today's guest's book, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm on in two seconds. Michael Schur is the creator of The Good Place, and he co-created Parks and Rec and Brooklyn 99, but my, of course, absolute favorite is The Office, where he was a writer and a producer uh, for four years. But most importantly, he was Moe's, Dwight's brother, on the show, uh, which we do talk about. So I've always been a huge Michael Schur fan. I don't know if I expected such an amazing work of moral philosophy to come from uh, Michael, but here it is. It's uh, a new addition to The Painted Porch. I read the book... uh, how to be Perfect, the Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. I loved it when I read it as a galley. I bought copies. We now carry it in the painted porch. You should check it out. I don't add a lot to the philosophy section, so this is a this is a, as high a praise as I can give a book. I thought it really interesting. And then I really enjoyed this conversation. He and I got to nerd out about philosophy, about psychology, about the crazy world we're living in. And of course, I got to ask him some very important questions About The Office, which if you haven't watched, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, And Parks and Rec, I don't know what's wrong with you. Two of the greatest shows of the last decade or so. And uh, I also follow on Reddit, I follow uh, R. Dunder Mifflin, which is always a good source of hilarious memes. In any case, and Brooklyn 99, 9 I really enjoyed too. So anyways, here's my conversation with the one and only Michael Schur. Check out his new book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. You can pick that up at The Painted Porch or anywhere books are sold. I'm sure the audiobook is great. And uh, enjoy this interview. You can follow Michael on Twitter. His handle is at Ken Tremendous. I have no idea why. I should have, I guess, asked him. But uh, enjoy this interview. I wanted to start with a very important question I've long had about an acting decision that you made, a character choice. Um, (laughs) Why does Moe's run like that?
1: You know, you're the second person in like three days to ask me this. Oh, no, I thought this was an
0: original question.
1: Well, the other people who asked me it were Jenna Fisher and Angela Martin from The Office. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, 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 mose was a character in the office if you're not familiar with the show who was a, a sort of uh, mennonite or amish adjacent gentleman who lived on a farm and was sort of a little bit of an odd duck and the i was basically a sight gag right that the writers were writing me into episodes in order to taunt me or haze me your pick so the, the um the very first episode that I was in, I my the stage direction was that I I sort of like run into a room, and I was sort of I'm not an actor I don't know how to do it I'm in awe of actors and their abilities to make choices and to inhabit characters I'm not any of those things so I was just like what is this person who am I and I just decided that he ran weirdly so I don't know why but I held my <laughs> I held my arms out and held my hands straight out and just ran. Just in a in the weirdest way I could think, I was just like, right. I don't know if this is right or wrong. I'm just going to make a choice, and I did it. And then, and then because everybody enjoyed it so much in the writers' room, they made me do it in ten thousand other episodes. And so now I was like, well, now I'm pot committed. I have to run this way every time they want me to run because this is the way this character runs. So very little, um, you know, I don't know what you would say. It's not that no thought went into it. It's just that it wasn't carefully considered as a as a choice.
0: Well, when I chase my children around, that's how I run, just to bother them. And it, it seems to make them deeply uncomfortable and makes the whole thing a lot more fun.
1: Great. I'm glad I'm glad that it could help someone in some way, shape, or form. <laughs>
0: uh well, I you know, I've I'm so glad to get the book and I, I loved it. I, I read the galley of it. I thought it was fascinating. I'm gonna I'm gonna go another obscure question. One of my favorite parts of the whole book is your little footnote on Ayn Rand. Um mm where you talk about it it possibly being a war crime to assign (laughs) one's staffers to read Ayn Rand. But but it brought up an interesting, I think uh, I've I've also read Ayn Rand. uh, I think she's fascinating when you're 19 years old. And if you don't grow out of it, there's probably something wrong with you, Mm -hmm. Um, which is of course a, a slightly unfair characterization. But if you think about what she was trying to do, it's from an artistic standpoint, it's pretty amazing that she writes this long ass book that is basically propaganda for a philosophy or a viewpoint that it it works like it's yeah. not the most beautiful work of art but like millions of people have read it like it's it's actually readable and people read it it strikes me as you would have a unique appreciation for how impossible that task is doing it essentially on the good place and then with this book to write about philosophy or big ideas and have them be entertaining and accessible is really really hard
1: yeah i mean she's arguably the most successful philosopher of the last i don't know 150 years or something i mean i don't even know who's comparable so it is a it's a neat trick she pulled because she she buried like you say she buried her philosophy in novels and and people i think are generally speaking more apt to engage with philosophy through a, a different artistic medium than a, than an intimidating uh, philosophy book. Uh, and it, so she did a really good job. Like she was, she's a very effective spokesperson for her own ideas. And she, and she laid them out in an, in a way that was intended to be more entertainment. I don't find her books entertaining. I find her books soporific and miserable to read. I, they, they You don't like um, 40 page speeches? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other problem is, of course, it's like, you know, and in, one of her longest books is about the locomotive industry, which is like that not a thing that you can really engage with in 2022 or whatever. But, um, I, I think that there is a lesson there and, and it's part of the reason I wanted to write this book, uh, how to be perfect, which is, I think that philosophers have so many things to offer us and so much wisdom and so many ideas and just suggestions and, and, um, I don't know, uh, just, uh, they have philosophies and yet they wrote such intimidating and dull at times uh works that nobody the barrier to entry is so high you know i remember thinking when i was doing research for the good place it's like man like these are such good ideas and they're so hard to dig out it's like it's it's like someone had written a recipe for a chocolate chip cookie that was delicious and also somehow healthy but the recipe was 700 pages long and written in German. And it was like, well, no one's going to read it if it's 700 pages long and written in German. And so if you could just communicate these ideas in a different way, I think it's what you've tried to do with your books and your podcasts is say like, there is wisdom here. I know it's ancient. I know it's scary. It's, it's Greek and Assyrian and Roman and it's scary. But, but the wisdom is real and helpful potentially to people. And so if you can just communicate it in a better way um, it, it will improve the world. That's the bet we're all making. I think. It
0: is weird though, because, I mean, you talk about uh, a lot of ancient philosophers and then sort of the, the philosophers right in between as well, like Kant and, and, and so on. But it is kind of weird that like, when you go back and you read the ancients, in some ways, they're actually a lot more accessible than the people who came a thousand years later and way more accessible than the people who are, 50 years ago or right now
1: it's it's oh, by far by far I mean part of it I think is that a lot of a lot of ancient Greek philosophy specifically uh and a lot of pre-Socratic Greek philosophy is very epigrammatic right it's yes. like everything is like a sentence um and I think that's part of why Nietzsche was popular because Nietzsche wrote sort of epigrammatically like his works are often um for the first of all they're very entertaining but they're often just like bullet points um you know, little bits of wisdom that he had an incredible facility with uh, with communicating very short very swiftly there's a There's a thing in one of his books, I think it's Beyond Good and Evil, where he talks about how he describes humans as looking at the world through frogs' eyes, and it's like a frog- and what he meant was a frog that pops its head out of a out of a, a a lake and can only see the world from this very low vantage point so it doesn't understand anything that's happening in the big picture, like that's so evocative. That's so cool and like understandable. And so I think a lot of the ancient Greeks, uh, had that same instinct, which was, we got to boil this down. Like this is like one sentence at a time. And I think that really helps with the the way they communicate.
0: Yeah. You think about uh, like a metaphor, like Plato's cave or the, an allegory, like Plato's cave. And you're just like, Man, that holds up like super well. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then you read some contemporary philosophy and it's this this endless web of of discursive, you know, like people trying to get at at ideas by summarizing 10,000 other ideas and then formulating their theory out of those ideas. And granted, it's like, it's a little bit like, I don't know if you're watching that Beatles documentary, Get Back, that's on um, Disney Plus now, but- like there i think i have two thoughts when i when i watched that beatles documentary one is um god these they were just so good they were just such great songwriters and then the second thought which is linked is like also no one else had been writing songs yet so yeah. like they they had the advantage of getting there first in a lot of these ways and also they were geniuses and i think that probably applies to philosophy too right there's probably a little bit of like We're the first people who are putting down these thoughts or trying to understand the world in this way. And so they could be a little more precise and basic in their approach, as opposed to now, where if you're a philosophy professor, you have to sift through thousands of years of stuff and summarize it and and, and analyze it in order to get out whatever you're trying to get out.
0: Well, it's kind of like the Simpsons did it thing. It's like they did it for so long, (laughs) so early, that they took all the low-hanging fruit and a lot of the the high fruit, but they took all the, the... Aristotle's like, uh, yeah, it's it's all wide open space, and he's just right. claiming all of it.
1: When I used to write at Saturday Night Live, and this and this is this is twenty almost twenty five years ago now. But you would come up with an idea for a sketch, and you'd be like, oh, this is this is going to be really good, and you'd be like, oh, this has been done. But Jack Handy did this already, or or Jim Downey did this already. And eventually, what you have to do, and maybe there's an analogy here for philosophers, is you have to say like, okay this is not a new idea, because this idea has already been explored. But if you only like engage with brand new ideas, you're never going to write anything. And so you just have to say, like, I'm going to put my spin on it, or my take on it, or my execution of it will be different. And that and that will be the reason it's worth engaging with and exploring instead of just like, I can only write something if no one has ever written it before.
0: I think that's right. Although I would argue that like if you take like Plato and these sort of analogies or or sort of thought experiments that he comes up with, the fundamental difference between what he's doing and what it seems like a lot of philosophers have tried to do in the more modern era is like it feels like he's trying to get to clarity And they're trying to get to like, let me blow your mind with this. So like the the allegory of the cave is this thing, but it basically says like, look, you have an obligation to go back and try to help people once you experience truth. I feel like the trolley problem, which you talk a lot about in the book, it's sort of like, yeah, you're like fucked either way. There's just nothing you can do about it. Or, Or like, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation? That's an interesting philosophical question but what am I supposed to do with this information? So it it almost feels like the ancients were trying to like get you clarity about the meaning of life or what you're supposed to do as a human being in a complex world. And it feels like a lot of philosophy today is like, let me just muddy the waters so much that you're just like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is a, um, there is a, here's what matters, thing that the ancients were doing right what matters okay well here are the here are the things that matters to the stoics here are the things that matter to socrates or whoever and now like the trolley problem is a perfect example because like you say baked into the equation is someone dies right you're, you're just screwed because someone is going to die and you are going to be the one who is standing at the front of the trolley making the decision and and it's, it's fascinating because someone is going to die. So the stakes of it, in the, in the writing world, we would say, the stakes of this problem are enormous. It's life or death. And so that is a good way to tease out the differences in moral decision-making when you know that in the best-case scenario, one person's going to be smushed by a trolley. Like, all right, let's, let's ride. Let's figure this out. So there's, a, there's obviously a fundamental difference between trying to lay out for people Here is what matters in life. And then, much later, laying out for people here are the terrible decisions, the terrible choices that we have to make on a day to day basis. How do we make the best ones we can? That's like a huge difference.
0: And I wonder if part of that is the ancient philosophers actually did stuff, right? Like they, they were thinking about this philosophically, but then they had jobs. Like, you know, even Socrates is like, is in the army, right? And and then is, you know, sort of faced with this life or death trial at the end of his life. Contrasted with, I think, the more academic philosopher whose job is just to think about complex things. So like you talk about this guy in one of the footnotes who's looking at the trolley problem, I think, and he's basically like, no, you can't kill anyone for any reason because they all value their lives whatever. And, and it's like, that is interesting, but I guarantee you like middle of the pandemic, if you were like, Hey, should we give the shots to older people first or younger people, that guy would then have an answer. Right. But it's like sort of academically, you can come up with a reason why the the question is infinitely complex or can be reduced down to this black and white thing. But if you're actually a politician or a teacher, or you're, you're creating a show and you have to make character decisions, like, you have to cut through all the abstractions and just like get to real life.
1: Yes, and it's a key aspect of a successful philosophy to me that it has practical application. I don't, much, I don't care that much about theory because I, the goal of this book and the goal of like my own goal for myself and engaging with this stuff is like, what can I practically do on a day-to-day basis when I'm forced with all these decisions? So the guy you're talking about is this philosopher named John Torek who wrote a piece called, uh, do the numbers matter? And what he essentially says is that, like you said, everyone's life is maximally valuable to him or herself, which means if you are the, I think that at one point in his paper, there's a thing where you're, you're the, you're the captain of a boat and you're off the uh, coast of an Island. And in the middle of the Island is a volcano. And at the North end is one person at the South end is like 50 people. And the volcano erupts and everyone's going to die. And you have to choose, do I go to the north end to save one person or the south end to save 50 people? And his thing is you flip a coin because you cannot, the sum total of people's lives does not matter. What matters is that each person's life is maximally valuable to him or herself. So you can't just, you can't just add them together, right? So where that takes him, if you extrapolate is... One person needs a million doses of a life-saving medicine to save him from a disease, and a million people need only one dose of that medicine. You're still supposed to flip a coin? Like, that's not a practical decision. Like, put John Torek in that decision and see what he does. And I don't think he's going to say, yeah, let's flip a coin and let a million people potentially die. So uh, what well, that I'm goes to
0: Kant, right? Would you want to live in a world where everyone acted that way? Of course not. You the world would cease to exist almost immediately because uh, no one would ever make any uh, decision that maximizes for outcome and we'd all go to war and die like very quickly.
1: Right. And and also, you know, you're 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 if there's any practical version of that situation, It's some kind of decision like the trolley problem where you look at where you are and you say, all right, I've got two choices and they both kind of suck. And so I'm gonna go with the one that I think is better knowing that I'm still causing harm. And the philosophies I'm most interested in are the ones that say, here are all the tools you can use to analyze the decision and to say like, yes, this is gonna be a, this is a 55-45 situation. It's not black and white, it's not up or down but here are all the tools you can make to make sure that you get the best understanding of the, of what the 55% is, you know?
0: Yeah. And to me, that's where, where Rand fails particularly bad is it's like, so the idea is like, because successful brilliant people aren't appreciated enough by society, they're just going to take their ball and go home. Like it's just (laughs) preposterous. Like, like I just, it's so childish and so absurd that like, it's almost, you get to the end of the book and you're like, is this really your argument? Are you 11? What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> yes, and that's the reason why, as you said, it's a thing a lot of people engage with and, and admire in like high school, when the world of ideas is opening up and the kind of, you're, you're, you're feeling like a, like you're a kid playing dress up as an yes. adult, right? You're feeling very, I remember when I was in high school, um, my dad was a philosophy major in college. And he had all his old philosophy books lying around and I started reading them and I didn't understand them. But I loved the idea of being a high school kid who read philosophy. So I would sure. walk around with Nietzsche or, or Heidegger or something in my bag and like or Kierkegaard and I, would, you know, I had being and nothingness and I would like leaf through it. And I didn't understand a word I was saying or reading, but I loved the idea of being the kind of person who did that. And I think that's a lot of what Ayn Rand appeals to is like, this is a big idea i'm filling your head with big ideas and you get so swelled up with pride because you understand them and they and they're like yes of course i am powerful i am i can do this i'm i'm on my own i am an adult now and then when you are 23 and you read it again hopefully you say like well this is absurd like <laughs> the world can't function this way this is ridiculous so yeah i again it's it's a little distressing like i say in my book it's a little distressing that she is the most successful idea relater of the last hundred years, but I don't think it's really in dispute.
0: Yeah, no, it's like, it makes sense if you have as arrested a worldview as Dwight Schrute, but like if you're a functioning adult in society, like the holes are so obvious that what do you do?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. There is, there is a certain kind of person who still has a Uh, An admiration for that for her philosophy and that kind of person is a person who in my opinion just isn't thinking enough about other people or about the world or about society or about the town they live in or just the concept of like otherness is just lost on people who are fans of her work
0: may is mental health awareness month and talkspace the leading virtual therapy provider is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childbirth. Childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80. When you go to talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic, code SPACE80. I'm just about to go into the studio to record my latest audiobook. My wife and I have been listening to audiobooks. We've been listening to audiobooks in the car as a family just to keep our kids off screens because Audible is amazing. And Audible is also the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next to listen recommendations to satisfy every type of thriller listener. If you want breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that will enthrall you, even brand new and exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, well, then you want to check out Audible. My wife and I were just raving about this true crime audio book that we read called Furious Hours. And then I've been raving about this book, Night of the Grizzlies, which I loved. Audio piques the imagination and it brings thrillers to life. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Visit audible.com/slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to five hundred five hundred. That's audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to five hundred five hundred. Well, it's funny because the book is called How to Be Perfect, but I think actually the central question of the book is what you just said. It's really like, what do we owe each other? That's really to me the central thrust of the book, but also of most philosophy is just like what are what are our obligations to the right thing to mm-hmm. uh other people to justice like what are we actually allowed to do versus shouldn't do versus uh could get away with but aren't going to do anyway
1: yeah that's the goal right is to find i think of it as the ceiling and the floor right there's a there's a floor for how little we are allowed to help other people or to care about other people or other Groups of people near us around us here uh, as Peter singer would say, either here or over there how what's the what's the minimum in any situation that you're required morally to care and then th- there's also a ceiling there's like a there's a there's a a danger in only caring about other people over there or nearby or whatever because then you're not living a sort of full and verdant life yourself, you're not flourishing yourself as Aristotle would say, and so the goal is to find the range and to just stay within that range, right? It's like if if you do things where you're like, "Man, this is a really selfish act," and I have I am I am uh, denying my responsibility to other people or denying what I owe to other people. That's bad. And if you get so lost in the concept of only caring about morality, then as Susan Wolf would say, you're not like you know, pra- reading books yourself or practicing the, your tennis game or cooking or spending time with your family. And then you're not really a person. So it's, it's, there is a range somewhere in the middle there. And our goal is to find that range and really try to nail it. That's what I'm, I'm writing about now. I'm doing
0: this book on temperance because uh, I'm doing a series on the four cardinal virtues. And I found it to be a very difficult book to write about because it's such an unsexy topic. Like to say like, <laughs> no, like you can't do it. Or to say like, yes, do it, chase as much of it as you can. That's very simple. But the idea is like some, but not too much. Is like Mm -hmm. the perfect amount of unsexiness that it's hard to talk about, hard to get people excited about, and also hard to define. It's a moving target.
1: It's an absolutely moving target as all the virtues are, right? The mean of every virtue is a moving target. And one of my favorite things about Aristotle specifically is that he says to you, okay, here's the deal. There is a mean and there's a perfect amount of every virtue that you need to attain. And, you know, courage or temperance or mildness or whatever it is, there's a perfect amount. And if you go too high, that's bad. And if you go too low, that's bad. And our goal is to spend our entire lives, every waking minute of our lives, finding, chasing and finding that perfect amount. And then he says, what is that perfect amount? nobody really knows <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so like so he's uh, and there's something kind of beautiful about it to me because he's basically saying all of life is trial and error right everything about your life is you make a choice you see the results you analyze how it went wrong you maybe adjust you make another choice and you're and you just get closer and closer and closer asymptotically closer to these means and the fact that he kind of can't really actually tell you because nobody can what that mean is it's just very human to me like it really feels very human and very um kind of uh lovely in its in its in its it's essentially a flawed philosophy because there's he can't kant can tell you like here's what you do right do this if you do this you win And utilitarians can do that, too. They can say, like, more good than bad. If you do more good than bad, you win the ethics contest. But Aristotle is kind of saying, like, all of the human existence is trial and error. And I'm telling you, you're essentially never going to get there because I don't even know where there is. And that's, I, I don't know, there's something kind of beautiful about that to me.
0: I, to me, I actually think it makes it more perfect be, or, or more of a usable philosophy because it's like, welcome, welcome to reality. It's complicated. Right. Like <laughs> right. I feel like Zen Buddhism does this well, where they're like, sometimes do this, sometimes do the opposite of this. You'll know when, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah. like, because if you tr- if you actually think you can be like, here is the rule or law, follow this in your behavior always you lose the ability to actually function in the real world and where things are complicated or confusing or you have imperfect amounts of information. Like I love the way the Stoics cut through this is they're like, okay, nothing that's not in our control is good or bad. Right. Um so we're we're indifferent. And but then Seneca goes, but aren't there such thing as indifference you would prefer? Right? So he's like, he's like, <laughs> obviously if you're tall or short, you know, you'll be fine either way, but it is better to be tall, right? Like, if you, or it's like, if I, if you had to choose between being rich or poor, not that either one of those says anything about you as a person, it's obviously better to have more than less. And so I just like, it's like cheating, but it also makes perfect sense that, like, yeah, like too much money is obviously a problem, not enough money is a problem. Split the difference, some amount of money is good, but. On generally, you'd rather have more than less. Like that's just life.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, and that, and I also can't help but think about the differences in the in the life that Zeno or Seneca was leading, and the life that we're leading now, right? Because the difference between when you say like some amount of money is right, well, that is an enormous range, right? Some right. amount of money is thirty five thousand dollars a year versus. $780,000 a year, the lives being led by those two people are enormously different in a number of ways, not just in what they have or what they can do, but the daily stresses that they're under because of the amount of money they have. And so sometimes those philosophies do a little bit break down when, the, when you're talking about a sort of generalized, hey, you, you'll f- just feel it out. You know, if you, you'll you'll kind of know one way or the other. Like, how will you know whether you should trade a job that where you're making $412,000 a year for one where you have to move to a different city to make $468,000 a year? Like, that's, eh, like, if, if, if it's just, it's, and that's why I think I admire the rough edges of something like virtue ethics. It's because even 2,400 years ago, there's an acknowledgement, I think, or there's a tacit acknowledgement that this is really hard. It's yeah. just hard. These decisions are hard. Life is hard. Figuring out how to exist as a, as a as a citizen, as a as a wife or husband or mother or father or son or daughter, uh, and and being a, and an employee and a student and a traveler and a and an enthusiast and a number of different hobbies, like figuring out how to spend the time you have and the resources you have, is really hard. And so it's a little bit of a Hey, just keep trying. Just keep yeah. trying. Just do the best you can and keep trying. And that is the victory.
0: Well, I think the money one is interesting too, because it's like, what if you're just really good at what you do and therefore, and you happen to be randomly in a very high per- paid profession, should one stop doing that because money is not a good, right? right. Like should should one give it all away? Uh, should one run in the opposite direction? It's, it's a, and I think again, the Stokes are fascinating because like, they like there is something about being the socrates or the diogenes the cynics or the zen monk that sort of like i renounce all of this and i'm go you know i i i am interested like even Kierkegaard is this like weird asocial person who's not able to function in the world (laughs) Right. right he's like your delicate flower artist type who's brilliant but like you know the newspapers write something mean about him, and he's like destroyed. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like the philosophers that were like, you know, just like in the mix of life. You know, yeah,
1: yeah. I think yeah, and that's that's sort of sort of what I mean by practicality. It's like I, I trust the people more who were living a life of engagement, of civic engagement, and societal engagement than the sort of like I'm going to go off into a little corner and just imagine use that's why Kant doesn't appeal to me personally Kant's thing is like a a situation arises and he is sort of asking you to like press pause on the world go into like a solitary confinement chamber discern a rule using only your own brain and your ability to reason come up with a maxim that then follows that universalizable rule and then go back Hit play on life and then say, I am choosing to do x, y, and z and it, it's just like all right man like yeah in 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 theory that's that's great um because you if you have if you have a a clicker that you, where you can pause everything all the time and and spend the resources to really figure out tease out what the right maxim is, great, most of us don't have that ability in fact, no one really has that ability so instead it's a little bit like you know aristotle says like all right try get angry but not so angry you know yes. don't get too angry just get this uh, get the right amount of angry at the right people for the right reasons and then you'll be okay and sort of by extension he then says like afterwards think about what you did think about the choice you made did you get too angry did you not get angry enough next time modulate and get and try to get closer to whatever that right amount of anger is and it's you know kant is offering you this um this foolproof guide, right? He's offering you a, like, these are the notes for the test you're gonna take. And w- if you study the notes and you memorize everything I'm telling you to memorize, you'll get an A on the test. You'll nail every question. But the actual test is your entire life and it involves a lot of other people who, are, who have other demands and other issues going on. And there isn't always, in fact, there very frequently is not ever the opportunity to really spend the time thinking about stuff that he wants you to spend.
0: Well, that that is an interesting other part of the book, which is, I think you talk about it pretty early on. You're like, you know, we hem and haw about these things. We're not sure what's the right amount. Should I do this? Should I do that? And then you're like, but some people don't think about this at all.
1: <laughs> right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah, I, it's th- that's one of the biggest problems, I think, in the world is that like y- you can spend as much time as you want mulling these decisions and choices and coming up with different theories of how to behave based on different great writers and philosophers and everything else. And then you'll encounter mostly people who just don't care in the slightest bit about what happens. And the newspapers are full of people, very powerful people in every realm of society who either don't care at all or have read and thought about this stuff and have decided to actively fight it and, like, and, and thwart it at every opportunity. And then, so it's like, well, what do you do? And this is actually the Stoic. This is where it comes back to the Stoic idea, I think. It's like, well, you can't control them, right? Sure. You can't control that. You control what you do. And it's, a, it's very like, the, the thing I like about the Stoics is it's, it's almost like the way I talk to my kids. It's like, don't worry about him. Don't worry about this thing you can't control. You you prepare. You do what you need to do, and then one way or the other, you'll know that you did your best. That is a that's a very um, simple parental child uh, bit of wisdom that is also a, a sort of stoic bit of wisdom. I think.
0: I think where we struggle with it though is that it feels so unfair. You know, you're like, <laughs> but they they're getting away with this, and yeah. you're telling me I have to pass up on this, or I have to delay gratification, or I have to willingly, uh, you know, I have to willingly comply, even though no one would actually force me to, I think we struggle with the society with the idea that like, it's all voluntary at the end of the day. Like, I think this is largely where the idea of God comes from. It's like, well, God's going to make you do it, right? Or you'll be punished at the end of your life. You just have to trust me, but there will be justice or karma for you at the end. That's how I think how we tell ourselves that they're not really getting away with
1: it. And by the way, not just punished, but rewarded for the people who do the good thing. Right. It's like that it is, it is a, a thing that people on earth, human beings invented in order to answer the question of why is everything so unfair? (laughs) It's like, well, don't worry at the end, there will be a reckoning. Right. And, and so there, that is a, uh, that's a tough thing to hold on to, especially if you're not a religious person. I'm not particularly religious. I wasn't raised in any religious tradition. And so I've never had the feeling personally that my life will be either rewarded or punished in the afterlife, which is odd because I made a whole TV show. about it. <laughs> but, but that, um, that feeling, I can a hundred percent understand the comfort in it because it is, incredibly unfair what happens in the world. You see people all the time, again, in positions of power, whether in politics or business or anything else, who are doing outrageously immoral things on a daily basis and are never punished for it, ever. They never, there's no comeuppance, there's no justice, there's no retribution at all. People, one thing I've been thinking about recently, and I know this is a topic of of some political discourse right now, is Why does any American politician allow to own any stock in any single US company ever? It it is absolutely absurd to think that the people that we elect to represent us have specific personal financial stake in specific companies because the government spends trillions of dollars a year and that money can so easily be misappropriated and allocated to companies that enrich them. And they're supposed to be protecting us, not the other way around. And there and yet you see all the time senators and representatives who steer our money, my money and your money toward companies that they profit from. That's an obvious ethical lapse at the highest level, and those people are never punished. And so when you are, when you're faced in a, on a daily basis with uh, stories and images of people Benefiting from a lack of caring about ethics—not just like they don't care, but they—the fact that they don't care is better for them. They yes. are winning the race. It's and, an adaptive are, advantage. Yes, exactly. They are—they have figured it out, and they are winning the race. And you know that nothing bad will ever happen to them. It becomes very hard, even harder, to care about being ethical yourself. And it—that's why it's like you just got to put your nose to the grindstone and double down, and and just know that. For, Somehow or other, it is better to to care than to not care.
0: I mean, the the Christian argument is like, yeah, you'll be rewarded in heaven or punished in hell. I think I've always said that the Stoic argument is um, whether or not those things exist, you will live in hell now, or you will live in (laughs) like your life will be hell. If you like, Mm -hmm. it's not sin because God will be angry, sin because it will punish you. I think that's. I mean, obviously, that's why I, I believe it's why I try to tell myself. And then, yeah, you watch. I don't know Michael Scott, or you watch Donald Trump, and the the question is like, are is it fun to be them? Like, are they getting away with it? Right? It's I'm not. It's it. Sometimes it feels like it's the answer is obvious, and then sometimes you're not so sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, we this is a very frequent writers' room debate. I'll tell you in Hollywood, <laughs> a writers' room debate is would it better? Th- this was a question that was posed to our to a writers' room six seven years ago. Would you rather be who you are or Rob Gronkowski of the then New England Patriots and now Tampa Bay Buccaneers? So Rob Gronkowski, if you don't know, is a six foot, six inch tall, just happy-go-lucky. He's basically a golden retriever that like a bolt of lightning hit him and he turned into a football player. He's just a rambunctious kind of ding-dong who just runs around and chugs beers and plays football and he's really rich and he's a a total uh, idiot. And in the, in the best possible way. In the
0: Michael Scott sense of the word.
1: Yeah, like yeah. lovable idiot, yeah. just an yeah. absolute ding dong. And and everyone, uh, everyone was like, oh, I'd rather be me. Like that guy is, I mean, first of all, I forget about the injuries sustained yeah. playing football, whatever. But like, it's unclear whether he can string three sentences together without uh, getting a headache, right? But then a lot of people are like, no, it's better to be Rob Gronkowski. It just is. Like he, because what, he is not tortured by anything. He does not appear to be um uh conflicted or tortured or upset by the world and the the process of engaging with the world and of caring about the world means you are bound to be on a daily basis upset by it you all of the injustice and all of the problems and and the and the seeming lack of interest on the on behalf of all the Rob Gronkowski's in like fixing anything means that you suffer a kind of pain that is outside of your control, that there's nothing you can do about. And I, I mean, I, I chose to be myself and not imagine myself as Rob Gronkowski, but I, by the end of the argument, I was firmly, I firmly understood the argument that it is better to be Rob Gronkowski.
0: When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash That's linkedin.com slash to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in growth hacker marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform. Helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over thirty-seven thousand companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/stoic. That's netsuite.com/stoic. Yeah, it's like nature is very merciful in, this, in the same way that, like, if you if your arm got bitten off by a shark, your body would go in this, you know, insane state of shock. So you would feel nothing. Uh, but when you get a paper cut, you don't get it. It's like when you are stupid or selfish or awful, you nature, it's like, well, I'm also going to pluck away the self-awareness that would make <laughs> you ha- like it, like uh, there's that, that scene in the office where Daryl says, you know, like you're the bravest one in the office because you... You wake up every day and you're Michael Scott. But, <laughs> but the reality is, it actually d- probably doesn't require any bravery because he can't conceive of being anything other than himself. So, by lacking the self awareness, you know, he probably never gets the shame or the self consciousness.
1: Well, that's a really interesting point to make specifically in light of that show because the premise of that show is that an unobserved group of people is suddenly observed by a camera crew. And we used to talk all the time in the writers room there about when, when the characters looked to the camera and why, right? So very frequently on that show, if you've seen it, um, something would happen. And then one of the characters would glance at the camera and they all had different relationships with the camera. Like Jim would look to the camera, like he was saying, uh, you're my friend and you, you, you and I are on the same page. You see how how ridiculous this place is, right? And Dwight would look to the camera like, yes, I'm awesome and I just did something really awesome. But Michael would often look to the camera like, uh oh, I just said something embarrassing or dumb or racist or whatever. And I just remembered, oh my God, there's someone looking at me. And then he would quickly try to backtrack or or undo whatever he had done. And it's an interesting psychological experiment to say like well what happens when a person who is selfish or uh, obnoxious or whatever put it what if we put cameras on all those people <laughs> and that's in a weird way that is what's happening in our world right Is like that sure. now there's a camera on everybody all the time the question is do do you if you played back for people their some of their behavior and some of their um, decisions would it matter and obviously i think in some cases as we've seen in the last couple of years like People go into a a Taco Bell and they're not wearing a mask and someone politely asks them to put on a mask and they lose their minds and they scream and yell and they stomp their feet and they break things and they talk about uh, Nazis. And I don't think that those people, if you played the video of them doing that, that someone took on their iPhone would go like, oh boy, I I really, I don't think they would have an Aristotelian. I think I got too angry there. I don't think that would occur to them. But I think there probably are some people who aren't totally aware of what they look like or sound like when they make decisions like that. And it's a like kind of interesting thing to think about. If you could make a documentary about every living human being, like how many of us would change our behavior? I think a lot of us probably would.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it, it does feel like I, I, you, you talk about that briefly in the book. And it is, I think, the part that's been most baffling to me uh, in in the pandemic, Like It really hit me rereading Marcus Aurelius, uh, realizing like, oh, wait, he wrote this during a plague that he probably (laughs) died of, right, Um, that that killed like millions of people. But he he talks about how there's two kinds of plagues. There's the one that takes your life and the one that affects your character. And it does feel like watching a lot of people who were filmed or, or unsolicitedly put these things on the internet themselves, people really do struggle with what you called like the bare minimum doing like even the most bare minimum for other people. And they have like, is that just like, they're like, Oh, I never thought about it. And I'm not going to think about it. It's almost like they really have thought about it. They're like, here's why I should not be inconvenienced, even in the slightest way to help other people. Because like I was talking to someone, I was like, it was very Christian. I'm like, look, love thy neighbor. Right? Like that's the most basic premise of Christian thought and you're just like well i'm healthy why should i get vaccinated or wear a mask and it's like they, like i was trying to walk them through that contradiction and they were just like yeah but i don't i don't need it like they just kept right. saying this over and over again like they could i just couldn't get them to compute
1: that they had an obligation to another person right and you see that with whenever anyone with that attitude tries to draw an analogy it's always the most revealing thing because it's like Hey, you know, a hundred thousand people die in car crashes every year. Why that we still we still wear, uh, you know, we still let people drive? And it's like, well, yeah, car crashes aren't contagious. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you getting into a car crash doesn't then potentially cause me. Uh, halfway around the world to get into a car crash or it's like but,
0: but also well, speeding is illegal uh driving while well, drunk is illegal all the ways <laughs> yeah. that it could unless you know hitting pedestrians have the right of way all- there are there are like so many laws that limit what you're right. allowed to do to so there's not negative externality
1: and also like even though you know we, we also still require you to wear a seatbelt. we still <laughs> right. make it safe as, as safe as it can lauren Boebert, who's a congresswoman from colorado just tweeted out a thing the other day that was like this many people die from cancer every year and it's like right. again if you get cancer it doesn't cause potentially me to get cancer if you and i eat in a restaurant together and it but like those arguments are always thrown back at them immediately and never once has any one of them gone like ooh good point like that's yeah. the thing that the thing that the internet age has has gotten rid of most effectively is the sentence oh that's a good point like you just never ever it's- Oops sorry yeah i i revise my opinion like that that you just never see people take put, put an idea into the world with that level of stridency receive new information or or have an argument come back at them that they maybe hadn't considered and then say like you know what you're totally right and i i rescind my comment like that's if we could sure. get better at that as a society that would go a long way toward i think curing a lot of what ails us
0: No, I think that's right. And it's like, if there's a thought experiment, so it's like, yeah, let's say 300,000 people die a year uh, of of cancer and like everyone had, but if everyone wore glasses, it would cut that number by 25% or 10%. So 30,000 people. Well, wearing glasses is not fun. It's not cheap. Most of us don't need glasses, but if somehow everyone wearing glasses even when it was dark outside, even when they fogged up in the in the steam or whatever, that thirty thousand people would would survive. I mean, like most people, if it in not in a politicized environment, would be like easy. Let's do that right now. But yep. for whatever reason, in the pandemic, and I think this is what Marcus was saying about something that infects your character. We've we've decided like no, this is different. I specifically don't give a shit about this thing <laughs> or who it affects.
1: My friend Megan Amram, who's a writer I've worked with a lot, said the smartest thing about COVID, which is basically it's a it's a black light. It's a thing that was turned on and revealed all of these ugly stains that are all over the country and the world, really. And that's the biggest one to me is that what it really revealed was this bubbling sense of I don't care. Like, yeah. I, like you, you're in trouble. I don't care. The the woman, the old woman next to me who lives next to me might die if I don't do this. I don't care. And the, the analogy that I draw in the book is like, you know, you, you're going to like a strip mall. To, uh, there's pharmacy to pick up a prescription and you park and it's really hot outside and it's annoying and the crosswalk is a block away. And so you look both ways. You're an adult. We're all adults here. I can jaywalk. Now, technically, yes, it's a crime. But it's the most, probably arguably the most minor crime, right? And so you just jog across the street and you pick up your prescription and it's fine. If I told you that, hey, instead of jaywalking, if you just walk a block south, use the crosswalk, and then walk a block north to get your prescription, 750,000 people might not die. I don't know why, but that's the case. We could save three quarters of a million people if we all agree to just go, even I know it's a hot day, I know you're late. I know that this is a you just want to jog across the street, but if you just do this slightly inconvenient thing, we could save three quarters of a million people. To say no to that is just the most callous and awful decision. And I and that and yet wearing a mask is roughly speaking to me as inconvenient as walking a block south and then a block north to the CVS. So it's just so disheartening. Of
0: that, the weirdest part is you add on top of that. It's it's not like you're like ah, but if no one's looking, I'm still gonna I'm still gonna uh sneak across the street because like not everyone has to do it right if you're like <laughs> 10% can still get away you still but then then so you're like okay maybe I get that uh but then you're like no 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 my position is not only am I gonna do that I'm then going to actively try to convince as many people as possible to also <laughs> do it with me. Right. Because because I not only don't care, I just want to watch the world burn.
1: <laughs> yeah you're gonna I'm gonna call the people who decide to Go use the crosswalk, Nazis and fascists. And and I'm going to decide that they're the real problem here. Yeah, that is, it's truly, um, it's truly disheartening. I I really, I find it uh, to be the most disheartening part of this, just to have it revealed through this pandemic, the percentage of people in America and in the world who, who not only don't care but actively want to do the opposite of what a caring person would do. That's really been a hard thing for me to internalize.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about virtue, then I think this is something I've just been struggling with. Like, so how do you continue to want to do the right? Like, how do you not just go, fuck it? I'm a nihilist, right? Or like you know like how do you how do you not give up on people when people are giving you every reason to give they're they're not only saying like yeah, uh you can give up on me if you want. They're like, "No, no, no. I'm irredeemable. Let me show you how irredeemable I am." To me, I think that's the pressing problem of our time. It's like how, all these ideas of like love thy neighbor or or serve the common good or or like how do you keep, how do you hold on to those things when you have unlimited access to, as you said, the documentary of how awful everyone is or how, how awful a lot of people are?
1: Yeah, it's not easy. And, and that's part of the impetus of writing this book, for me at least. Um, there's a quote from Bernard Williams, who's a British philosopher that I quite like, where he points out that we are specially responsible for what we do rather than what other people do it's it was an attack on utilitarianism where he said like that that basically a lot of the a lot of the attacks on utilitarianism basically that it basically that it doesn't differentiate it doesn't take seriously as john rawls said the difference among people it it sort of coagulates all people into the just like little cogs in a machine who are creating good or bad and you want to activate more cogs that create good than more than the ones that create bad And Bernard Williams says, look, we are specially responsible. We are uniquely responsible for what we do and and more so than what other people do. And that really is a very simple way of saying like, okay, there are all these other people and you're looking around and they're doing various shitty things and it's really disheartening. But the answer can't be, I guess I should do those shitty things. Like it just, that can't be the right answer. Like you have to remember that you are more responsible for what you do than for what other people do. And as long as you keep that in mind, you, I, I hope you can't get to a point where even as tempting as it is to just to do whatever everybody else is doing that sucks and is giving them some, some potentially, like a head start in the race or is helping them in some way financially or socially or whatever, that it just can't be the answer to say, I know that thing is bad that that person is doing but i'm going to also do it in order to attain whatever that person is attaining and I, and part of that by the way i think is also keeping in mind and this is obviously a stoic idea is that and as well as that this is an eastern idea there's a lot of philosophy that talks about how if you are um it's very buddhist right if you are attached to things if you are if you have the wrong kinds of attachments or you care too much about attaining certain things you're on the wrong path, right? So if, if you're saying, if I'm looking at someone in a position of power who is um, using his or her political influence to steer money towards a company that he or she owns stock in to gain financial wealth, and I say, well, I guess I'm going to do the same thing because if they don't care, why should I care? The, the root of that, is the idea that the thing that they're gaining matters, right? That it's like, oh, that extra $23,000 in stock appreciation is something that I should care about. And so if you don't- And if it's you can, worth what you're giving up to get Yes, it. that the price of your soul is, is that extra money. And so if you, if you start from a position where I'm gonna make sure that I am attached to the right things, to, the, to caring about, that I'm mindful, that I'm focused on what actually does matter- you will start to see that the things that they're the parts of their souls they're selling aren't worth it to, because the thing they're trying to attain is not something you should even care about attaining and that's hard like it's hard to say that to people. It's hard to say to people money doesn't matter or a bigger house or a nicer car doesn't matter like it's hard to to believe in that sometimes, but that's uh that's the deal you gotta you gotta start from that position, i think, and then and then go from there.
0: So changing gears slightly, can philosophy be fun or, or funny? Like uh, <laughs> They seem like they would be very different. I'm just curious your take.
1: Um, can philosophy as a discipline be fun? Is that or the question?
0: I, I think I just the idea of comedy and philosophy, one might think they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Certainly people who are not interested in philosophy probably have that view.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find it very funny, personally. And that could be just because I was a comedy writer first. And so I I tend to like, try to find whatever's funny about anything I'm doing. I think the trolley problem itself is deeply hilarious. There's nothing on paper funny about it. It was written in 1967 as an investigation of The doctrine of double effect which goes back to saint thomas aquinas and and the paper that philip afoot wrote about was specifically about the problem of abortion not funny topics right but the situation she puts you in is objectively hilarious to me at least it's like everything about it is funny and everything about it leads to a funny conclusion and when you actually picture yourself on a barreling train with no brakes and having a lever and making the life or death decisions I find it to be, and that's why we did a whole episode of The Good Place about it. I find it to be a funny situation. A lot of the thought experiments that philosophers have come up th- with to talk about philosophy, I think are very funny. The discipline itself, is it funny? I don't think it is. Like it's, it's not intended to be, at least. And what's funny about it is often in the margins or in the, if you take a step back and you imagine the, the people really living their lives, uh, l- living the lives that they have laid out as how one ought to live one's life. It often becomes funny or reaches, you re- can reach some very funny conclusions about what it means to be a pure Kantian or a utilitarian. Um, but, I, you know, the the good place was my attempt to say, like, let's take this fairly unfunny, dry thing and try to explain it through humor, which I think means it's going to be a lot easier for people to engage with it.
0: It does feel like, like almost from an improv standpoint, like on the, the trolley problem, there's a, an element of like, well, how can I just keep escalating the stakes to make it funnier? Like the, and then you throw a fat guy off the bridge in front, you know, on top, and it's just like, how could it get more ridiculous as a premise?
1: Yeah, there's, there's certainly. I mean, the trolley problem is, like I say in the book, it's, it's been the most talked about problem in philosophy for fifty years, and most academic philosophers are sick of it, and they, they are so bored. I compare it in the book to Stairway to Heaven. It's basically the Stairway to Heaven of philosophy because it's like. Yes, I recognize that it's a piece of genius, but also, God, we I don't want to hear, to it, hear it again. It. We have to hear this again. Like, right? So but but what's good about something like the trolley problem is that there has been a continual conversation about it for 50 years. People have been responding to it. There's whole books on it you can read. There have been TV shows like mine and others that have engaged with it. That it's a it's a it's like a, a very fast-growing mold that it, that has a lot of dimension and a lot of different aspects to it that now can be analyzed and discussed. And some of them are woof. Some of them are really hard to understand. It, it's now where you get into, at the far end of the spectrum, you get into like, you get into ma- a lot of math. There's a lot of math that comes <laughs> into philosophy that is just beyond my capacity for understanding. But what I, what I preferred on in the show and in the book to focus on was just the nuts and bolts. Like what is like, what is what is this getting at? Like, what is what is this problem trying to get at in, in terms of how we can just practically speaking make decisions that make us a little bit better than we were yesterday?
0: Yeah, I was gonna, uh, I don't know if you know the story of Chrysippus, the Stoic philosopher and how he died.
1: No, I, I know Seneca. I know how Seneca died. I don't know how Chrysippus uh,
0: died. So yeah, Seneca's death is, is pretty epic. And there's almost a comedy to it. Like he keeps trying to kill himself and none of, none of it's working for Seneca. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then uh, he's like trying to bully his wife into doing it. And they're like, what are you doing? Uh, but but no, the Chrysippus is, uh, he's like one of the most serious, one of the most academics sort or of one of the most like... Uh, like ardent defenders of stoicism. So you wouldn't expect he'd go out this way, but he's an old man and he's sitting on his porch and a donkey walks up and starts eating the figs out of his garden Uh, and he starts laughing. And then he supposedly says something like, does does he need some wine to wash down those figs? And then laughing so hard at his own joke for an extended period of time, he drops over dead.
1: (laughs) That's a great death, good work. I think so too. Uh, I mean, I, I think Socrates' death is extremely funny when you read the account of it because it's unintentionally so, but when you read the account of it, it's like, you know, he's on trial in Athens basically for just being annoying. They basically put him on trial because he was annoying. And they're in, they, they, they say, you know, here's the crime you're uh, accused of or whatever. And he gives this long and beautiful and eloquent speech about why he refuses exile and, and, uh, and why he doesn't think he should be killed And it goes on for page after page after page. And then in the text, it's like, you know, they vote and he's going to be killed. And he's like, okay, but before you kill me, just consider this long eloquent speech, blah, 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 blah. Here's why I did this and this and then blah, 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 blah. They take another vote. He's going to be killed. And he's like, but hold on for a second. And he, he just keeps like making these long, beautiful, famous speeches about why he believes that he's innocent. And then it's just like. Because and doesn't he, he propose it, that he be rewarded instead of punished <laughs> like, he, he, he does it's a very ballsy move he's like what about this what if you give me a plaque basically yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the, i mean uh there there are certainly um look all philosophers are human beings and human beings are hilarious like by their nature we are flawed ridiculous absurd creatures Whose lives are wildly varied, have massive ups and downs and unexpected twists and turns. Who do ridiculous things that are indefensible by any ethical theory, and also are capable of unbelievable generosity and kindness. And all of those things are true about all people. And so, as a result, there—I mean, Seneca was a moneylender in yeah. in England. He was he uh, I, he was like a wealthy man who, uh, who had, was like a multi multi-millionaire by, by the day's standards. And when he died, didn't he say something like, I leave, I leave to you. He was trying to work out his will and yeah. he was like, and I couldn't get it done in time. Cause they were like, you gotta go, man. And eventually he was like, he said to his wife, something like, I, I leave to you something greater than money, which is the, the image of like a noble and, and perfect yeah. life. And meanwhile, he's been screwing people out of money in England for decades. Like <laughs> and he has the gall like 30 seconds before he dies to go like, just be like me. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. But what should we
0: do with the money? Like what (laughs) What should we do with the money? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a legal question here, buddy. (laughs) So I, what is, what I think is beautiful and frustrating and wonderful and annoying about people in general is that we are all, we all contain these multitudes. We are all capable of of the greatest th- achievements and the kindest gestures, and also the most callous and selfish and awful decisions, they're all inside all of us, and so the theories that I love are the ones that basically say, like, "Yeah, we all suck, man, we're all imperfect, we're all monsters, we're all also potentially great. Let's just try to like minimize the bad stuff and emphasize the good stuff, and that is one way or the other. that's what they were all getting at like that's what the utilitarians wanted it's what it's what Kant wanted to nail exactly. It's what the virtue ethicists wanted. It's what Tim Scanlon, who wrote uh, "What Do We Owe to What We Owe to Each Other," it's what they're all after. Derek Parfit, the the contemporary philosopher, described all of the schools of philosophy as scaling the same mountain from different faces of the of the peak. Right, it's like utilitarians are coming up on the east face, and the Kantians are coming up on the North face and the, and that's, I love that image. Cause it really is the more you read from different eras and of different people, the more you realize they're all after the same thing. It's just like, what do we do? What the hell do we do? Where this is so hard. Life is so hard and complicated. What do we do? How do we try to get better at this, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I think like, obviously gladiator is a drama, but there is a humor to it where it's like, you have the, the only philosopher King ever in history And he just raises the shittiest kid. Like he's just like like so bad. Like the worst kid of all time. There's something just hilarious and also fitting and like human about that. Yeah. uh, I love it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's what like succession is about too, right? At some level, it's like this guy's a monster and he raised three monstrous, four monstrous children. And there's like a battle for their soul going on in every episode of like, do they they're slavishly devoted to him is any of them going to break free like and every time they start to he like draws them back and like he, and it's what the sopranos was about right the sopranos is about a where a, the a trumps de- in real life yes it's like these like the the depictions it's what breaking bad was about right it's like this good guy who has a monster inside him and it, the whole show is a battle for his soul does he does it does he win or does he lose uh and it's in the sopranos it's through therapy it's like i'm i ha there's a potential that he can see the light here but he's also so steeped in this awful behavior it's unclear whether he's ever going to break free like once you start thinking about once once philosophy gets into your into your brain and into your soul you start seeing it everywhere you start seeing the depictions of characters and movies and tv shows and people around you you see everything as a collection of philosophical decisions
0: so, uh, and I'm sure you have to run. So, my last question for you would be like, speaking of the stuff we're talking about in the world, and then uh, obviously the, the TV shows we're talking about, I have found that like lately, like all I can really watch are like reruns of The Office or, you know, like <laughs> Parks and Rec or like I can like is I, I can watch like Law and Order because Law and Order is like so self contained. Mm-hmm. But like, I just found like I can't do these like, 40 hour Netflix dramas or even like great stuff. Like anything like basically post breaking bad. I'm like, I just don't, I I feel like I don't have the emotional or the cognitive uh, ability to just like put up with more, like another (laughs) awful world. So I just return to like the same shows over and over again. What is that?
1: Well, I, it's probably a couple things. Um, the pandemic I think was a, uh, was like the, the, global equivalent of like a, a cold rainy day where a lot of people's impulse was like, I have to be in my house. I can't leave my house because it's cold and rainy and I want to eat a big bowl of mac and cheese and watch friends. That's what yeah. I want to do on a cold rainy day. Like I, I think that the, the fear and the, and the unknowability of the world I think caused a lot of people to go back and just revisit things that bring them comfort and joy, which I think is completely understandable and, and frankly, probably healthy um i think there's also the global political situation the the existential threats that we face from things like global warming and and russia massing forces on the ukrainian border and all of the depressing stuff that you read every day and the and the gerrymandering of the us congressional districts and the impending doom of the midterms and all that sort of stuff i think all of those things have led us at, at least i'll speak personally they've led me to try to draw a line between the engagement that i have in the world which i think is a civic duty that we all share and my personal private life and in my personal and private life what i want to do is sit on the couch with my wife and watch something that's entertaining and i i have found the same difficulty with grappling with dark sad downbeat depictions of human beings Um, because I think I'm trying to get away from the reality of the dark and and brutal depiction of human beings that we see in the real world every day. So it's some combination of those factors. It's also probably just, I don't know how old you are. I'm 46. You get to a certain point in your life and you think you start doing triage in your mind. Like how many, how many days, months, weeks, years do I have left? How do I want to spend them? And I mostly want to spend them being happy, if I can possibly. <laughs> yes. yeah. but, and and that doesn't mean, by the way, that there isn't happiness and joy to be found in a brilliant depiction of Tony Soprano or Walter White. Like, of course there is. Like, that's a specific kind of joy. And I hope that I never get so afraid of of dealing with, like, human psychology on through entertainment that I don't, that someone says, like, this show is incredible and I run away from it because I don't want to engage with that kind of depiction but i also think that the more the older you get the the greater your impulse is to just try to share in a joyful experience with other people um and and to have that be the thing that you, you that you pass your time with you know
0: i think that's why ted lasso's worked for sure
1: sure yeah i think that's a perfect example like that ted lasso coming along at that moment in the pandemic like it's exactly what everyone wanted they just wanted radiating positivity and joy and it and it really uh, hit a nerve
0: did you did you see that question it was this was on twitter a couple months uh, this is i guess in 2020 but it was like what beloved television character would have voted for trump and so you had to like <laughs> you had to ruin them I, what what beloved character in your universe do you think would be like one of the anti-vaxxers anti-maxers that were maskers that we're talking about
1: F- from a show i have actually worked on you're yeah, saying yeah uh boy. Um cuz like I was going to say well, you know, Archie Bunker obviously would have voted for sure, Trump, but Of I, course. Uh I'm not that old. I didn't work on all the family. Um that's a good question. Uh I mean, well, Jeremy Jam was a a, oh, yes. a character on on Parks and Recreation played by John glazer who was a city councilman who was also a dentist and he had moved to the town of Pawnee, Indiana because he was a dentist in Pawnee. Uh, Pawnee's biggest industry was a candy factory, and they didn't fl- put fluoride in their water. Yes. So he was like jackpot, right? And so his his sole intention was to profit from his position as a city council person. There's no question he would have been campaigning for Trump. I mean, he yes. would have been he would have yard signs and and floating a boat around a lake. Um, he's the first one that comes to mind. I don't know that That's any a of great the good. One. Yeah, I don't know if any of the good place characters would have. I mean, even some sometimes you get into the situation where you're like when you, with a question like that where you say like well what about eleanor Kristen bell's character would she have voted for trump and my answer usually is sort of like well she probably didn't vote like she doesn't care like she doesn't tear one way or the other like she probably thought trump was funny but she was also like he's gross i don't want to like she would just wouldn't vote in the election you know so I don't know. There's, I'm sure there were more, but Jeremy jam is the, is basically is he's Donald Trump jr. Essentially in the, in the show before Donald Trump jr. Was a thing.
0: No, that's a great one. Yeah. And he'd, he'd have a a no mask policy at the dentist's office for sure. A hundred (laughs) percent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't even wear a mask and then he would, he would, there's no question that Jeremy jam was infected with COVID early on and also (laughs) passed it on to like 700 other people.
0: (laughs) No, and I I got to imagine what uh, Dwight's probably going down uh, a pretty dark internet rabbit hole, and then uh, Ron Swanson. That that's the big danger there. Well,
1: Ron, Ron, uh, a couple of people asked me what who I thought Ron would vote for, and Ron is a libertarian, um, but he's an actual libertarian. Like he right. he's a nineteenth century libertarian. He lives on his own farm, and he he hunts his own meat. He he's not a fake contemporary American political libertarian. And I think that the things that he admired above all other characteristics were things like integrity and honesty. And I can't imagine he would have voted for Trump. He wouldn't have voted for Biden, certainly, but he wouldn't have voted. He would have written in like Teddy Roosevelt or something, you know, like he wouldn't, but he wouldn't have voted for Trump. And Dwight's possible because Dwight was very clannish and he was very um, impressed by wealth and status and i think that there, it's possible that that trump's whole deal would have sort of appealed to him um and you're you're pro- you're definitely right he was also something of a conspiracy theorist so there's he's there taking is
0: a, horse dewormer for sure
1: yeah but he was taking it also 10 years ago before <laughs> yeah. long before I, he was rubbing it on his gums for some completely unrelated reason so he thinks he's inoculated against it because he's been eating ivermectin for since he was a child you know um, but so yeah, there's, there's definitely a dark potential path for Dwight Schrute through contemporary America. Uh, I hope as someone who has affection for him as a character, I hope he didn't go down that path. That would be depressing if he were a, like a Q, QAnon guy or something.
0: Well, no, I think to connect to where we are in the world and the issue, the moral philosophy you're talking about in the book, that's really been the hardest part is you watch people who, you know, deep down have good hearts, who you are fond of. Who would like? I I live in rural Texas. These are people who would, uh, you know, rebuild my house if it burned down, or change my tire, or or you know, come pull my truck out when it gets stuck. But then, you know, even of the Ron Swanson's of the world, you you can watch how easily a person can become susceptible to misinformation, can be mm-hmm. radicalized, can be can be deceived. Almost, it's almost using the identity. Like we see this with with masks and vaccines, where it's like. They had this idea of courage so resistance feels like courage but if you're resisting the wrong thing you're missing the point point. and you can watch how good people can end up doing profoundly immoral things and still maintain their identity as a moral person
1: yes there's a there is a default setting amongst a significant part of america and the default setting is no like if when when asked to engage in something or to be a part of something or to make a sacrifice The default is no and it and it takes a lot to get those people to say yes and that is a that's deeply baked in the history of the country into the settling of the country into the frontier celebration of the country into the cowboy imagery that we all uh, that everybody grew up on the default setting is take care of yourself, defend your land sit on the, sit on a uh, your porch with a shotgun and make sure nobody takes your stuff right. and that and I, I spend a lot of time in Texas. My grandparents lived in Texas my whole life, and the, it is a, it is truly wild because you the Texans, in my experience, are the friendliest people I have ever met. I have never once had a bad interaction with a Texan, really in any, in a grocery store, in a, in a, on a, my grandfather used to play golf at his uh, a re- retirement country club. And everybody was kind and generous and they would remember your name and they would pat you on the head. And guys used to slip me a quarter and say, go, you know, go get yourself a gumball. And, and, uh, and it it is one of my favorite places in the world to visit is Texas. I love Texas. I if, if the subject of politics came up, I would never be invited back. And so there it is, it's hard. It's a, it's a real, um, it's just a lot of cognitive dissonance between the kindness and the essential goodness. What I see is the essential goodness of people, not just in Texas, but all over the country. And like you said, the generosity, like you're, 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 there's a flood or there's an earthquake or there's something, there's any kind of problem. Communities rally around and they help each other out. And, this is no different. Like wearing a mask is no different than helping someone bail out water out of their basement. It's the same exact thing, but it has been politicized to the point where it, where it is received as different. It, and that's a real bummer because it's not different. Bailing water out of your, out of your neighbor's basement after a flood is no different in its essential instinct from wearing a mask. And yet people think of them as different.
0: Very well said. Well, Michael, I I absolutely love the book. It's great. Uh, This will go up uh, when it's out. And uh, I really appreciate you writing it. And uh, I hope the sequel has more stoicism in it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, I know. When I was uh, coming on here, I was like, oh, shit, I should have written more about the Stoics. <laughs> we, we, got
0: one, we got one footnote. I, you did.
1: You did about Kant. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on. This was really fun. I really enjoyed the, I really love your podcast and, uh, and I really uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. You know, the Stoics in real life met at
0: what was called the Stoa, the Stoa Pokile, the Painted Porch in ancient Athens. Obviously we can't all get together in one place because this community is like hundreds of thousands of people and we couldn't fit in one space but we have made a, a special digital version of the stoa we're calling it Daily Stoic Life it's an awesome community you can talk about like today's episode you can talk about the emails ask questions that's one of my favorite parts is interacting with all these people who are using stoicism to be better in their actual real lives you get more daily stoic meditations Over the weekend, uh, just for the Daily Stoic Life members, quarterly Q&As with me, cloth-bound edition of our best of meditations, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, including discounts. And this is the best part, all our Daily Stoic courses and challenges totally for free, hundreds of dollars of value every single year, including our new year, new you challenge. We'd love to have you join us. There's a two-week trial totally for free. Check it out at dailystoiclife.com. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts.
2: Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T boy, this is Nick. This is Jack, and we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. Twenty minutes each morning, you're gonna feel brighter. We call it Pop Biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies, or you're going for that promotion at work, or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app, or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad free right now. on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more...
3: by joining Wondery Plus.